Well, hey, everybody, it is crazy to think that we are almost done with our Roman series, but here we are four weeks in and we have covered a ton of ground. We've gone from Romans chapter one all the way to Romans chapter eight, and that is some of the most theologically dense, rich portions of scripture that we have, but we made it and we covered it in three weeks. Here we are week four. And really what we've been doing this entire series is just learning more about the gift of salvation that we've been offered through Jesus. Learning more about what that means, the implications it has for our lives, just kind of walking deeper into it, that that idea that we are given this gift of salvation. It is a gift that only comes through Jesus. And we've said this whole series, it's a gift that none of us deserves, but it's a gift that nonetheless has been freely given. Though we didn't earn it, though we couldn't earn it, it's been freely given to us. And it's a gift that because it's been freely given, all we can do is receive it through faith. And once we have received that gift of salvation through faith, it brings us freedom from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and it makes us right with God once for all forever. And maybe the most incredible thing about this gift is that this gift of salvation is not exclusive, it's not insider only. This gift of salvation is offered to all, and it's able to save all. As a matter of fact, that's what Paul says right in the middle of our text that we're going to look at this week. And in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, maybe the most famous verse in the entire book, Paul makes this incredible statement, Romans 10, 13, when he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is an incredible statement. It's really kind of a shocking statement. A statement where Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Put it another way, Paul is saying, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you've been in church a long time, that doesn't move your needle a whole lot. But when you sit back, reflect on exactly what Paul's saying there. That is a massive statement with huge implications. And I think if we're being honest, it can be a little hard to believe, right? That anyone, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. It's hard for us to believe, I think. And I'll just speak for myself. Sometimes it's hard for me to believe that God would save those among us, that God could save those among us who seem to be the most unsavable, right? Like when you think of the most unsavable, who do you think about? That God would save them. Who, who do you think about? Because when that idea of somebody who's unsavable comes to your mind, there's a bunch of different options you can go to, right? Maybe what you're thinking of is a hardened drug lord leading a Mexican cartel. They would seem to be highly unsavable. Or maybe not. Maybe it is an uber-successful, high-flying CEO who has no need from anybody and doesn't think that he needs saving because his world's going perfectly. Maybe he seems unsavable. Maybe it's an Islamic or a Buddhist teacher in the Middle East or in Asia. Or maybe, if we're going to be really honest this morning, the most unsavable among us just are those people who look different than us, act different than us, and vote different than us. But what if I told you that when Scripture talks about those that seem the most unsavable, none of those people make the list? 
You see, I think when we think about the most unsavable, we have this whole cadre of sinful characters that pop into our mind. But over and over again, it seems as though the authors of Scripture seem the most unsavable among us, not to be the unrighteous, but the self-righteous. Let me say that again. When the Bible talks about those who seem the most unsavable, it is not the unrighteous sinner but it is the self-righteous religious person. And that is why where we come this week in the book of Romans, we see Paul seemingly interrupt his discussion of salvation. For chapters 1 through 8, he's been talking about our need for salvation. He's been talking about the price of salvation. He's been talking about the results of salvation. But now it seems he's going to interrupt that. And for three chapters from Romans 9 to 11, he's going to focus on God's dealings with the nation of Israel. In light of this gospel that he's been proclaiming, that he's been teaching about, for three whole chapters in this book, Paul is going to talk about God's dealings with this particular nation. And what he's doing here, if you've already read these chapters through our reading plan, what you've seen is that Paul is wrestling with the fact that despite being God's chosen people, Despite being blessed more than any other nation on the earth, despite their efforts to keep and to maintain the law, the vast majority of the nation of Israel was lost. And they were separated from God, condemned under His wrath. Just look at Paul's heart when he begins Romans chapter 9. Look at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Hear hear his heart here. Paul says this. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. See, what we see here is Paul crying out over the lostness of his brothers and sisters in the nation of Israel. He is heartbroken over their lostness. Now, we know it's not possible, but what he's saying is, if it were possible, that he would go to hell if they didn't have to. What an incredible heart. What an incredible depth of sorrow that Paul feels specifically over this lostness. Now let's pause because there's something for us to learn here, especially if you are a follower of Jesus and a part of the orchard. What I want us to learn here before we really move on in these three chapters is that we will not impact lostness until we are moved by lostness. We have a mission, we have a vision to see the orchard impact lostness on a significant scale here in north central Florida. And if we're going to do that, just reaching 1% of the half million lost people that live with us, that work with us, that go to school with our kids, that we coach on our ball teams, just 1% of those half million lost people is 5,000 people. That's just 1%. So if we want to impact lostness in a significant way, it has to start with us being moved by lostness. Far too many followers of Jesus that fill up our churches week in and week out are just simply no longer moved by the lostness around them. We see that people are seemingly content to sit in our comfortable services, to attend our well-done programs, 
unmoved that people around them every single day are leaving this life to spend an eternity apart from Jesus. Think about this. I heard that. I heard this this past week. According to the International Mission Board, the International Missions Arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, the IMB, the International Mission Board has studied and found that approximately 157,690 people die every single day apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Over 150,000 people a day. That's about two people per second that step into eternity unprepared for the judgment that awaits. Now, my question is, does that move you? Does that thought stir you? Do you have that grief, that sorrow in your heart that Paul has? Maybe the question that we should be asked is, why are we not moved by that? Why are we not moved by the staggering lostness that we see around the world? And even here in the buckle of the Bible belt, why are we unmoved by lostness? Because we will not impact lostness until we are moved by lostness. And the other question that I think you have to wrestle with, and we've got to keep moving on, but I want you to wrestle with this. What will it take for you to get serious about impacting lostness? What will it take for you to take the mission seriously? Paul was moved by the lostness of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. But what makes Israel's lostness so shocking here in Romans chapter 9 is all that they had been blessed with, right? Keep reading back in Romans chapter 9. Start there in verse 4. It says, They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them by physical descent came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. Paul looks at the nation of Israel. He sees their lostness, but more than that, he is so shocked by their lostness because of everything God has given them. They were God's chosen people. They were given care of the temple. They were entrusted with the law. Paul goes on to say even more than that, Jesus Christ was physically descended from the nation. And yet despite all of that, All that they had been blessed with, their seeming self-righteousness, they are lost and are separated from God. Now, immediately we want to think, why? Like, like how can that be? How, How is it possible that this nation, God's chosen people, is lost, separated from Him? How can they be given all of the blessings, all of the revelation that they'd been given and yet still remain lost? Well, Paul answers that for us. Skip down to the end of chapter 9. Look at verse 30. Look at what Paul says. And we're going to go on into chapter 10. So we're just going to keep reading. This is what he says. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes through faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. 
They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul is very clear here, that despite everything Israel had been given, despite their blessings, despite the physical lineage, despite all they had been entrusted with, their self-righteousness was keeping them from receiving Jesus's righteousness. The reason that they were lost is because they were busy trying to save themselves, and so they crucified the one who was sent to save them from their selves. And still, what makes the gospel the gospel, what makes the gospel so overwhelming and so incredible is despite their self-righteousness, despite the rejection of the long-promised and awaited Savior, Israel still had the opportunity to be saved. Like we would like to think if if they were going to reject the righteousness that God was freely offering, if they were going to reject this gift of salvation in an effort to continue to save themselves, then they didn't deserve that gift. But the truth is that in His grace and in His mercy, God still offered. Skip down just a few verses from when we quit reading. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 8. Paul says this. He says, On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you in your heart and in your mouth. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. And here we are again, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I think we see it now, right? Everyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, including the most unsavable, including the most self-righteous, including those who don't think they need it. If they will just call, they will be saved. And though we don't have time to go through and read it together today, Romans chapter 11 makes it abundantly clear that many from Israel will indeed call on the name of the Lord and they will be saved. Despite their rejection of Jesus, despite their self-righteousness, despite trying to earn what they could never earn, many of Israel will be saved in the end. Well, why? Because God is faithful. We talked about this a few weeks ago. God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his promise. God is faithful to his people. Though they are lost and had rejected him, the offer of salvation still stands, and there will be many who receive it. So when you look at Romans chapter 9, 1 through 11, or Romans chapter 9 through 11, these chapters are really, I think, a fleshing out of Paul's understanding and application of the gospel that he's been proclaiming in the first eight chapters. 
So the first eight chapters, he walks through the theology of it all. And here in these three chapters, he kind of zooms in and looks at how this applies to the nation of Israel. I think that Paul understood that Israel's lostness before God was a real thing, and it was not mitigated by, in fact, it was probably even magnified by their physical descent from Abraham and their past relationship with Yahweh. Remember, we started by saying that Jew or Greek, the righteous or the unrighteous, the religious or the irreligious, the church person or the not church person, all fall short of God's glory. I think more than that, Paul understands that by trying to earn their righteousness through keeping the law, Israel had missed the righteousness that only comes through faith. Right? Paul, Paul talked about that. We've talked about that, that the righteousness we need, we can't earn. The righteousness we need, Jesus has earned in our place. The righteousness we need can only be received through faith. You can't work your way to it. And he saw Israel was working their way towards it, so they missed it. But I think Paul understands that there's still hope for Israel because God is faithful to forgive and faithful to restore. So when you read these three chapters, 9, 10, 11, it kind of seems like Paul's taking a break from this theology, but I think what he's doing is really kind of practically working it out in his life in regards to his brothers and sisters of the Jewish nation. Now, I've got a thought here. I I really do. And I want to be clear, it's just a thought. It's just a thought. There is nothing in this text that explicitly backs up this thought at all. Just to be clear. But I've just got this feeling that when Paul was writing Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son was echoing somewhere in the back of his mind. Now, if you've been around church, you're familiar with that parable. Maybe you've never heard it before. I'll summarize it, that there's a parable of a father with two sons, an older son who was very uh, a church person and a younger son who was very much not a church person. The younger son comes to the father and says, hey, give me all my inheritance so I can go live it up. And he goes and lives it up, spends his money, parties, women, drugs, whatever, and he loses it all, finds himself in a pig pen and says, I've got to get up. I've got to go home. I've got to apologize to my father. I've blown it. And so on his way home, before he even gets to his dad to apologize, the dad comes and meets him by the road, lavishes love and riches upon him and throws a party because his son who was lost is now found. But I don't think that's why that parable was echoing through Paul's mind. I think when Paul was thinking about Israel, he wasn't thinking about the younger son who had wandered away from God and pursued their wild oats. But I think when Paul was writing Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, he probably remembered the older son in that parable. Matter of fact, let me me just read the end of that parable for you. You find it in in Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, uh, we give an insight after where most of us shut off reading the parable of the prodigal son. After the younger one goes into the party, there's kind of a forgotten piece that happens after the party started that focuses on the older brother. And this is what happens. In verse 25, it says, Now his older son was in the field. And as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants questioning what what these things meant. Your brother is here, the servant told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And in verse 28, it says, Then he, the older son, became angry and didn't want to go in. 
So his father came out and pleaded with him, but he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, the father said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, I think as Paul was writing Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 and thinking about the lostness of Israel, he probably saw that like Israel, this self-righteous older brother had alienated himself from the father. And at the end of the parable, the prodigal son, the younger son who had went and blown it, and the father are both in the party while the older son leaves us hanging about whether he's going in or not. And see, that's a big deal that we miss because in this parable, the party represents heaven. And so when we think about the statement that anyone can be saved, that everyone can be saved, we usually think that that refers to the prodigals. But here in this parable, the prodigal's the one in heaven and the self-righteous older son is the one left out. That's because the self-righteous are really those who might be the most unsavable. I think Paul probably got that as he was writing these chapters. But before we leave today, I want to go back and look one more time at Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. That verse that says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I want you to read that carefully and think about this clearly. It doesn't just say that everyone or anyone can be saved. It says that everyone or anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, that, that's a huge distinction from just thinking anyone and everyone can be saved to those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, I think what we have to understand is this. I need you to zoom in for like five minutes See, the gospel demands a response. The gift of salvation demands a response. It's not a response that we give over time. It's not a response that we give without realizing it. The response here that the gospel demands is to call on the name of the Lord. And calling on the name of the Lord is an action. It's a moment in time through an intentional choice where you respond to an awareness of your sinfulness and your lostness by crying out and asking the Lord to forgive and to save you, renouncing your own efforts at righteousness and trusting and receiving the gifted righteousness of Jesus instead. That's what it means to call. We turn from our self-righteousness. We cry out for the righteousness that we could never earn, but the righteousness that's freely given. And we, by our choice, put our trust in Jesus. And the honest truth is that some of you have never done that. You've never had that moment. Sure, you've started coming to church and you're there as often as you're not. Sure, 
your life is in pretty good shape, at least from the outside looking in, and you're a decent person, and you've dropped some bad habits, you've broken some old addictions, you don't cuss as much, you don't drink as much, you're a pretty good guy, and church is a big part of your life, but you've never called on the lame of the Lord to be saved. And right now, hear me, you are lost. You're lost. And your pride and your self-righteousness has kept you from publicly acknowledging your sin and your inability to save yourself. It's kept you from crying out to a Savior. You probably think that you and God have an understanding. You've prayed. You've told Him that you're going to do better. You've asked Him to help you do better. But there's never been that moment where you have publicly called on the name of the Lord to save you from your sin. So right now, I'm inviting you to do just that. Maybe you're at home. Maybe you're with friends. Maybe you're watching this at some other point during the week. But right now, you have a fresh awareness of your need for a Savior. And I want you to call out to Him. Jesus, I know that I can't earn the righteousness I need. Jesus, I know that on my own, I deserve nothing but your judgment, but I believe that you sent your son to take that judgment for me and to give me a righteousness that I couldn't get on my own. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Save me. And I believe when you cry out to him through your voice in your heart that he can and that he will. I'm inviting you right now to make that profession of faith public. Call on him. Put your faith and trust in him today. Freely receive that righteousness that you've never earned. We've got people who are waiting right now to talk to you, right now to pray with you. Reach out in the comment section. Send us a message online. Uh, hit the I need live prayer button or even just call us if you have our number. But right now, would you respond to the gospel? Would you respond to the gift of salvation and for the first time, drop your pride, drop your self-righteous and call on the name of the Lord? Let me pray for you. God, I pray today that you would bring many dead hearts to life, even the most unsavable among us, those who are good people, those who have made church going a habit, those who have broken through addictions and whose marriage is better than it's been in years, but those who have never called on you to be saved. God, I pray now that by the power of your spirit, you would move them to cry out for forgiveness, to cry out for salvation, to take the step to make it public, to acknowledge their sin and need for a savior. And God, that as you do, we would see a great harvest. We would see people move from death to life. God, that you would save many today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.